Chapter One of the Sturdy Oak. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ginger Cucolo. The Sturdy Oak. Chapter One by Samuel Merrin. Genevieve Remington had been called beautiful. She was tall, with brown eyes and a fine-spun mass of golden-brown hair. She had a gentle smile that disclosed white, even teeth. Her voice was not unmusical. She was twenty-three years old and possessed a husband who, though only twenty-six, had already shown such strength of character and such aptitude at the criminal branch of the law that he was now a candidate for the post of district attorney on the regular Republican ticket. The popular impression was that he would be elected hands down. His address on Alexander Hamilton at the Union League Club banquet at Hamilton City, twenty-five miles from Whitewater, with which smaller city we are concerned in this narrative, had been reprinted in full in the Hamilton City Tribune, and Mrs. Brewster Smith reported that former Congressman Hancock had compared it, not unfavorably, with certain public utterances of the Honorable Elihu Root. George Remington was an inch more than six feet tall, with sturdy shoulders, a chin that gave every indication of stubborn strength, a frank smile, and a warm, strong hand-clasp. He was connected by blood, as well as by marriage, with five of the eight best families in Whitewater. Mr. Martin Jaffrey, George's uncle and sole inheritor of the great Jaffrey estate, and a bachelor, was known to favor his candidacy was supposed, indeed, to be a large contributor to the Remington campaign fund. In fact, George Remington was a lucky young man, a coming young man. George and Genevieve had been married five weeks. This was their first day as master and mistress of the old Remington place on Sheridan Road. Genevieve, that afternoon, was in the long living room, trying out various arrangements of flowers that had been sent in. There were a great many flowers. Most of them came from admirers of George. The Young Men's Republican Club, for one item, had sent eight dozen roses. But Genevieve, still a thrill with the magic of her five weeks long honeymoon, tremulously happy in the cumulative proof that her husband was the noblest, strongest, bravest man alive, felt only joy in his popularity. As his wife, she shared his triumphs. For better or worse, for richer or poor, in sickness and health. The ancient phrases repeated themselves so many times in her softly confused thought as she moved about among the flowers that they finally took on a rhythm. For better or worse, for richer or poor, for richer or poor, for better or worse. On this day her life was beginning. She had given herself irrevocably into the hands of this man. She would live only in him. Her life would find expression only through his. His strong, trained mind would be her guide, his sturdy courage her strength. He would build for them both, for the twain that were one. She caught up one red rose, winked the moisture from her eyes, and gazed, wrapped lips parted, color high, out at the close-clipped lawn behind the privy hedge. The afternoon would soon be waning. In another hour or so, she must not disturb him now. 
in an hour say she would run up the stairs and tap at his door and he would come out clasp her in his big arms and she would stand on the tip of her toes and kiss away the wrinkles between his brows and they would walk on the lawn and talk about themselves and the miracle of their love the clock on the mantel struck three she pouted turned and stared at it well she told herself i'll wait until half past four the doorbell rang genevieve's color faded the slim hand that held the rose trembled a very little her first caller she decided that it would be best not to talk about george not one word about george her feelings were her secret and his marie ushered in two ladies one who rushed forward with outstretched hand was a curiously vital-appearing creature in black plainly a widow hardly more than thirty-two or thirty-three fresh of skin rather prominent as to eyeballs yet everything considered a handsome woman this was alice brewster smith the other shorter slighter several years older a faded smiling tremulously hopeful spinster was genevieve's own cousin emmeline brand it's so nice of you to come genevieve began timidly only to be swept aside by the superior aggressiveness and the stronger voice of mrs brewster smith my dear isn't it perfectly delightful to see you actually mistress of this wonderful old home and her slightly prominent eyes swiftly took in furniture pictures rugs flowers how wonderfully you've managed to give the old place your own tone nothing has been changed murmured genevieve a thought bewildered nothing my dear but yourself i am so looking forward to a good talk with you emmeline and i were speaking of that only this noon and i can't tell you how sorry i am that our first call has to be on a miserable political matter tell me dear is that wonderful husband of yours at home why yes but i'm not to disturb him ah oh, shut away in his den genevieve nodded it's a very important paper he has to write it has to be done now before he is drawn into the world of campaign work of course of course but i'm afraid the campaign is whirling already i will tell you what brought us my dear you know of course that mrs harvey harrington has come out for suffrage thrown in her whole personal weight and no doubt her money i can't understand it with her home and her husband going into the mire of politics but that is what she has done and grace hatfield called up not ten minutes ago to say that she has just led a delegation of ladies up to your husband's office think of it to his office the first day well emmeline it is some consolation they won't find him here he isn't going to the office today," said genevieve but what can they want of him to get him to declare for suffrage my dear oh i'm sure he wouldn't do that are you my dear are you sure well he has told you of his views of course genevieve knit her brows why yes of course we've talked about things my dear of course he is against suffrage oh yeah, yes of course i'm sure he is though you see i would no more think of intruding in george's business affairs than he would think of intruding in my household duties naturally genevieve and very sweet and dear of you but i'm sure you will see how very important this is 
here we are right at the beginning of his campaign those vulgar women are going to hound him they've begun already as our committee wrote him last week it is vitally important that he should declare himself unequivocally at once oh yes murmured genevieve of course i can see that the door swung open a thin little man of forty to fifty stood there a dry but good-humoured man with many wrinkles about his quizzical blue eyes and sandy hair at the sides and back of an otherwise bald head he was smartly dressed in a homespun norfolk suit he waved a cap of homespun in greeting afternoon ladies genevieve a bachelor's admiration and respect i hope that boy george has got enough sense to be proud of you but they haven't at that age they're all for themselves oh no uncle martin cried genevieve george is the most generous mr martin jaffrey flicked his cap all right all right he is and slowly retreated mrs brewster smith an eager light in her eyes moved part way across the room but we can't let you run away like this mr jaffrey do sit down and tell us about the work you are doing at the country club is it to be bowling alley and swimming pool bowling alley and swimming pool yes tell me chick might a humble constituent speak to the great man genevieve hesitated i'm sure he'd love to see you uncle martin but he did say not to be disturbed by anybody eh yes uncle martin it's a very important statement he has to prepare before good day then you look fine in the old house chick mr jaffrey donned his cap of homespun ran down the steps and out the front walk hopped into his eight-cylinder roadster and was off down the street in a second there was a sharp decisiveness about his exit and about the sudden speed of his machine all duly noted by mrs brewster smith who had gone so far as to move down the room to the front window and watch the performance with narrowed eyes the jaffrey building stands at the southwest corner of fountain square it boasts six stories mosaic flooring in the halls and the only passenger elevator in whitewater the ground floor was given over to humphrey's drug store and most of humphrey's drug store was given over to the immense marble soda fountain and the dozen or more wire-legged tables and the two or three dozen wire chairs that served to accommodate the late afternoon and evening crowd at the moment the fountain had but one patron a remarkably fat boy of perhaps fifteen with plump cheeks and drooping mouth the row of windows across the second floor front of the building above humphreys bore each the legend remington and evans attorneys at law the fat boy was percival sheridan otherwise pudge his sister betty sheridan worked in the law offices directly overhead and possessed a heart of stone betty was rich at least in the eyes of pudge for more than a year betty was twenty-two she had enjoyed a private income pudge definitely knew this she had money to buy out the soda fountain but her character thought pudge might be summed up in the statement that she worked when she didn't have to people talked about this even to him and flatly refused to give her brother money for soda as if a little soda ever hurt anybody she took it herself often enough within five minutes he had laid the matter before her up in that solemn office where they made you feel so uncomfortable she had said 
Pudge Sheridan, you're killing yourself. Not one cent more for wrecking your stomach. She had called him Pudge. For months he had been reminding her that his name was Percival, and he wasn't wrecking his stomach. That was silly talk. He had eaten but two nut sundaes and a chocolate frappe since luncheon. It wasn't soda and candy that made him so fat. Some folks just were fat, and some folks were thin. That was all there was to it. Pudge himself would have a private income when he was twenty-one, six years off and billy simmons in his white apron was waiting now on the other side of the marble counter for his order and grinning as he waited six years why pudge would be a man then too old for nut sundaes and chocolate frappes too far gone down the sober slope of life to enjoy anything pudge wriggled nervously locked his feet around behind the legs of the high stool rubbed a fat forefinger on the edge of the counter and watched the finger intently with gloomy eyes well what'll it be pudge this from billy simmons my name ain't pudge very good mr sheridan what'll it be one of those chocolate marshmallow nut sundays i guess if 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 what mr sheridan if oh well just charge it billy simmons paused in the act of reaching for a sunday glass the smile left his face pudge though he did not once look up from that absorbing little operation with the fat forefinger felt this pause and knew that billy's grin had gone and his own mouth drooped and drooped it was a tense moment you see pudge billy began in some embarrassment only to conclude rather sharply i'll have to ask mr humphrey your sister said we weren't oh well sighed pudge getting down from the stool he waddled slowly out of the store it was no use going up against old humphrey he had tried that he went as far as the fireplug close to the corner and sank down upon it everybody was against him he would sit here a while and think it over perhaps he could figure out some way of breaking through the conspiracy then mr martin jaffe drove up to the curb and he had to move his legs mr jaffrey said hello pudge too it was all deeply annoying meantime during the past half hour the law offices of remington and evans were not lacking in the sense of life and activity things began moving when penny evans christened penfield came back from lunch he wore an air betty sheridan noted from her typewriter desk within the rail of determination his nod toward herself was distinctly brusque a new quality which gave her a moment's thought and then when he had hung up his hat and was walking past her to his own private office he indulged in a faint fleeting grin betty considered him she had known penny evans as long as she could remember knowing anybody and she had never seen him look quite as he looked this afternoon the buzzer sounded it was absurd of course nobody else in the office he could have spoken you could hear almost every sound over the seven-foot partitions she rose waited an instant to ensure perfect composure smoothed down her trim shirt-waist pushed back a straying wisp of her naturally waving hair picked up her notebook and three sharp pencils and went quickly into his office he sat there at his flat desk his blond brows knit his mouth firm a light of eager good humor in his blue eyes take this he said betty seated herself opposite him and was instantly ready for work memorandum 
from rentals the old evans property on ash street the two houses on wilson avenue south and the factory lease in the south extension a total of slightly over thirty six hundred new paragraph from investment in bonds railway and municipal an average the last four years of twenty eight hundred dollars new paragraph from law practice last year over forty five hundred dollars will be considerably more this year total new paragraph no continue total ten thousand nine hundred dollars this year will be close to twelve thousand dollars don't you think that's a reasonably good showing for an unencumbered man of twenty-seven dictation that last no personal query penny to betty yes then it is very good you want this in memorandum form any carbons one carbon in the form of a diamond gift from penny to betty miss sheridan settled back in her chair tapped her pretty mouth with her pencil and surveyed the blonde young man her eyes were blue frank capable eyes penny i like work here i should hope so and i don't want to give it up then don't i shall have to penny if you don't stop breaking your word it was a definite agreement you know you were not to propose to me on any working day before seven p m this is a proposal of course yes of course but i just that makes twice this month then that you've broken the agreement now i can go on and put my mind on my work if you'll let me otherwise i shall have to get a job where they will let me but betty i've just this noon sat down and figured up where i stand it has frightened me a little i didn't realize i was taking in more than ten thousand a year and all of a sudden it struck me that i've been an imbecile to wait or make any agreement then you broke it deliberately absolutely betty no fooling now i'm in earnest studying him she saw that he was intensely in earnest you see child i've tried to be patient because i know how you were brought up what you're used to why i wouldn't dream of asking you to be my wife unless i could feel pretty sure of being able to give you the comforts you've always had and ought to have but hang it betty i can do it right i can give you a home that's worthy of you any time this year even penny do you think i care what your income is for one minute why why when i'm earning twenty dollars a week myself and prouder of it than but that's absurd betty for you to be working as a stenographer of all things a girl with your looks and your gifts and all that's back of you you mean that i should make marriage my profession well well probably that's why we keep missing each other penny i've pinned my flag to the principle of economic independence you're looking for a girl who will marry for a living there are lots of them pretty attractive girls too your difficulty is you want that sort you really believe all girls are that sort at heart and you think my independence a fad something i shall get over don't you now well i'll confess i can't see it as a normal thing yes i believe i hope you will get over it well miss sheridan slammed her book shut and stood up i won't she stepped to the door and the agreement stands i want to keep on working and i want to keep on being fond of you 
that agreement is necessary to both desires. She opened the door, hesitated, and a hint of mischief flashed across her face. I'll tell you just the person for you, Penny. Really, marriage is her profession. She's very experienced, temporarily out of a job. Alice Brewster Smith. He snatched a carnation from the glass on his desk and threw it at her. It struck a closed door. The outer door opened just then, and Mr. Martin Jaffrey stepped in. He nodded, with his little quizzical smile, to the composed young woman who stood within the railing. "'Anybody here, Betty?' A slight movement of her prettily poised head indicated the door marked Mr. Evans, and she said, "'Penny's there.' "'Is he shut up, too? His partner is too important to be seen today.' "'Oh, no,' replied Betty, inscrutably sober. "'He's not important.' Mr. Jaffrey wrinkled up his eyes, chuckled softly, then stepped to the door of the unimportant one. Before opening it, he turned. Mrs. Harvey Harrington been in? Twice, with a committee. Any idea what she wanted? Betty was aware that the whimsical and roundabout Mr. Jaffrey knew everything about everybody in Whitewater. She was further aware that he had, undoubtedly, reasons of his own for questioning her. He was always asking questions, anyway, worse than a Chinaman. And for some reason, perhaps because he was Martin Jaffrey, you always answered his questions. Yes, Betty said. She wants to pledge him to suffrage. Um, yes, I see. You wouldn't be against that yourself, would you? Naturally not. I'm secretary of the Second Ward Suffrage Club. Um, yes, yes with which illuminating comment Mr. Jaffrey tapped on Penny Evans' door, opened it, and entered. Spare a minute? he inquired. Sure, said Penny. Two, ten, take a chair. No, replied Mr. Jaffrey, I won't take a chair. Think better on my feet. I'm in a bit of a quandary. Suppose you tell me what this important paper is that George is drawing up. Do you know? I do. Is he coming out against suffrage? Flatly. Mm. Mr. Jaffrey flicked his cap about. I want to see George. He mustn't do that. Say, Mr. Jaffrey, you haven't swung over. Not at all. It's tactics. I ought to see him. Why not run out to his house? Just been there. Ran away. Someone there I'm afraid of. Telephone? Mr. Jaffrey shook his head and lowered his voice. With Betty hearing it at this end, and the committee from the anti setting it out down there, the telephone's on the stair landing. He pursed his lips, waved his cap slowly to and fro, and observed it with a whimsical expression on his sandy face, then glanced out of the window. He stepped closer, looking sharply down. A very fat boy with pink cheeks and downcast expression was sitting on a fireplug. Mr. Jaffrey leaned out. Pudge, he called, come up here a minute. On the Remington and Evans stationery, he penciled a note, which he sealed. Then he scribbled another to Mrs. George Remington, asking her to hand George the enclosure the moment he appeared from his work. The two he slipped into a large envelope. The very fat boy stood before him. Want to make a quarter, Pudge? Take this letter right now to Mrs. George Remington. Give it to her personally. It's the old Remington place, you know. He felt in his change pocket. It was empty. He hesitated, turned to Evans, then reconsidering, produced a dollar bill from another pocket and gave it to the boy. Now run, he said. 
The boy, speechless, turned and moved out of the office. His sister spoke to him, but he did not turn his head. He rolled down the stairs to the street, stood a moment in front of Humphreys, drew a sudden breath that was almost a gasp, waddled into the store, advanced directly on the soda fountain, and with a blazing red face and angrily triumphant eyes confronted Billy Simmons. "'I'll take a chocolate marshmallow nut sundae,' he said, "'and you needn't be stingy with the marshmallow, either.' At ten minutes past four, the anxious antis in the Remington living room heard the candidate for district attorney running down the stairs, and even Mrs. Brewster Smith was hushed. The candidate stopped, however, on the landing. They heard him lift the telephone receiver. He called a number, then... "'Sentinel office. Mr. Ledbetter, please. Hello, Ledbetter. Remington speaking. I have that statement ready. Will you send a man around?' "'Yes, right away.' and I wish you'd put it on the wires. Display it just as prominently as you can, won't you? Thanks. That's fine. Goodbye. He ran back upstairs, but shortly he appeared, wearing the distrait, exalted expression of the genius who has just passed through the creative act. He looked very tall and strong as he stood before the mantel, receiving the congratulations of Mrs. Brewster Smith and the timid admiration of Cousin Emmeline. His few words were well chosen and were uttered with dignity. "'And now, dear Mr. Remington, I'm sure I don't need to ask you if you are taking the right stand on suffrage.' This from Mrs. Brewster Smith. The candidate smiled tolerantly. "'If unequivocal opposition is right—' "'Oh, dear man, I was sure we could count on you. Isn't it splendid, Genevieve?' The reporters came. It was a busy evening for the young couple. There were relatives for dinner, other relatives, and an old friend or two came later. Throughout, George wore that quietly exalted expression and carried himself with the new dignity. To the adoring Genevieve, his chin had never appeared so long and strong. His thought had never seemed so elevated. His quiet self-respect had never been so commanding. He was no longer merely her George. He was now a public figure. Soon he would be district attorney, then, very likely, governor, then, well, senator, and finally, it was possible, someone had to be President of the United States. He had begun this day by making a great decision, stepping boldly out on principle, on moral principle, and announcing himself a defender of the home, of the right. At midnight, the last guest departed. George and Genevieve stepped out into the summer moonlight and strolled arm in arm down the walk. Waddling up the street appeared a very fat boy. "'Why, Pudge!' cried Genevieve. "'What on earth are you doing out at this time of night?' "'I'm going home, I tell you,' muttered the boy on the defensive. He carried a large bag of what seemed to be chocolate creams from which he was eating. As he passed, a twinge of memory disturbed him. He fumbled in his pocket. "'I was to give you this,' he said then, and leaving a crumpled envelope in Genevieve's hand, he walked on as rapidly as he could. A few minutes later, standing under the light in the front hall, George Remington read this penciled note. I stood ready to contribute more than I promised, any amount to put you over. But if you give out a statement against suffrage, you're a damn fool, and I withdraw every cent. A man with no more political sense and skill than that isn't worth helping. You should have advised me. M.J. End of chapter 1 Recording by Ginger Cucolo, Washington, D.C.